the transformation that's happened over the past couple years, besides walking into that AA meeting, going to therapy was the single greatest thing that I ever did for my mental health. Welcome to another episode of Pretty Perspectives, the podcast that opens your mind to new ideas and creativity. I've curated this podcast to reach people who are avid learners and creative thinkers. My goal is to spread ideas, knowledge, and inspiration so that we can all continuously become the best versions of ourselves. My name is Molly, and I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Today, I am interviewing a friend of mine. His name is Nick Mead. I know Nick through a VA group that we are both part of, and I'm especially excited about this interview because, among many things, Nick is a wellness coach who is also an extreme advocate for mental health among men, and I think this is a really special interview, and I recommend it to anyone who needs to hear some cold, hard truths about life, addiction, fitness, the military, and so on. So without further ado, let's get it. And Nick, I'll let you introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Nick. I met Molly at a a program that we both do together. I am a nine to five union industrial painter. I got into that through a program that the Army Fort Lewis was offering when I was getting ready to ETS. I'm also on this wellness journey I've been on for a couple, three to five years now of just kind of exploring what works for me. And I'm mostly a father. I also just started my own wellness coaching business. That's cool. So can you tell me a little bit about your time in the military, how long you served and stuff? Yeah. So I joined when I was 17 as a cab scout. Funny story. Me and my recruiter lied to my mom because I was 17. She had to sign a waiver And so we told my mom I was going to be an assault helicopter mechanic and I was going to get a $20,000 bonus. And if I went to Iraq or Afghanistan, I was going to be on like big base and I was going to be safe. And as soon as she signed the waiver, the next time I went to MEPS, um, we changed my MOS to Cav Scout because uh, my best friend at the time was a Cav Scout in Iraq. And he was like, oh, yeah. If you ain't Cav, you ain't shit. And you don't want to be a pogue and blah, 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 and like all that stuff. So we changed my MOS without telling my mom and she was pissed. She didn't talk to me or my recruiter for for a while. Whose idea was it to lie? Mine. Yeah. (laughs) And it was my idea. And this was back in 2008. So that's when Obama was sending the 150,000 troops to Afghanistan or whatever. So they were taking everybody. I mean, I was a high school dropout and the army paid for my GED. If you look on my ERB, it says Troubled Youth Program up in the top right of my ERB. It was a, a combined effort on me and the recruiter's part. So I was in for six years. I did two years in Afghanistan. I was there from 2010 to 2011, 2012 to 2013. First deployment was south of Kandahar in the Dan province. And my second deployment was kind of bounced around everywhere. I was based out of Zabul, but I was on the... Um, squadron commander's PSD. So I was his shadow and we did a lot of bouncing around from base to base and overseeing a lot of the bigger operations and stuff like that. What made you join the military? It was kind of like a combo. I mean, my great grandpa was in World War II. 
My grandpa was in Vietnam. And all growing up, I lived with my grandpa for a period of my life. And my grandpa used to call me killer this, killer that, hey, killer, da, da, da. And used to talk about how military made him a man and, and this and that. And then, oh, shoot, when I was 11 is, is when 9-11 happened. And I told my grandpa, I'm going to go over there when I turned 18. And he said, son, by the time you're 18, like, we're not going to be there anymore. Like, that's a long time away. We're not going to be there anymore. And little did he know we'd be there for 20 some years. <laughs> and I wish that I could say that it was that like homegrown patriot. I'm going to do what's right for my country thing. But honestly, I had no, I had no other options. I ruined my life up to that point. I dropped out of high school when I was 15. The way that I got into a recruiting office is it was like midday on like a Tuesday and the recruiting office was right next door to this Chinese food buffet that me and my homeboys used to like go to and we were all stoned and drunk and we were going into the Chinese food buffet and the recruiter was out front smoking a cigarette and he snapped me up why aren't you in school and I'm telling him like no if it's none of your fucking business what I'm doing like da 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 and next thing I know I'm taking the ASVAB <laughs> That's pretty funny. So tell me a little bit about your childhood, how you grew up and kind of like why you dropped out of high school and stuff. Yeah. So man, if you were to just hear my story, everything points to I should have been a statistic in every negative way that you can think of. My mother had me when she was a teenager. Her birthday's the first, mine's the fifth. So she had me four days after she turned 18 or 19. We don't know exactly who my dad is. We have a good idea on who it is, but there's other options. My mom battled addiction for a long period of my life. And that kind of took a hold of my childhood. It's me and my two sisters, my two half sisters. And we didn't really live like your normal average life. We bounced around from boyfriend's house to boyfriend's house, wherever my mom could get her drugs at. We lived in a Thunderbird for a period of time in a car, just kind of driving from place to place. There's periods of times where I'm six, seven years old and I'm changing my baby sister's diapers and I'm cooking top ramen for me and my sisters to eat because my mom either isn't there or she's locked in her bedroom for three days. I didn't really go to school like full time until I was in third grade when I moved in with my grandparents. And because my mom had gotten into some trouble and my mom went to prison for an extended period of time. So to keep us out of the system, my grandparents took me and my sister that's two years younger than me. I have another sister that's six years younger, but they couldn't handle her so she went and lived with my aunt and everybody thought that that was going to be a turning point in our childhood because my grandparents were considered the rich people in my family. My grandpa was a union truck driver. So like in my family, that's made it. You know what I mean? Like they were able to go on vacations and they took us on vacations and stuff. And that came at a price though. My grandpa was a very physically and emotionally and mentally abusive person. I'm talking, he'd bust my lip or bust my nose in the mall for back talking him or to the point where we're scared to do anything. We never brought friends over, like what was going to set him off. And that's when I first started thinking that being angry was a normal part of life, right? Because the, here's this man who I thought was this great man. 
And because he was the first like steady father figure I ever had. And he was taking care of us. And I was just like, oh, this is the way life is. Like every once in a while, you just get smacked in the mouth. Like you just shut up when they're talking to you, this and that. And so I took that as like normalcy and that gets embedded to you when you're a young man and you see that you think it's normal for your wife and children that walk on eggshells. And that's a sign of respect because they're scared that you're going to get mad or they're scared you're out in public and you're going to flash off and punch some guy in the face or so it's, oh, do whatever it takes to make sure that you don't make Mike mad or you don't make Nick mad. But it was a, it, it had a gives and takes. I mean, I went on vacations with them and I had finally had Christmases where I had presents and we had food, which are all things that we weren't used to before we moved in with them. So I would take that as a win. It was a step up from where I was at. And then I moved in with my aunt where the money wasn't exactly there. No more physical abuse, but there was a lot of mental manipulation. She didn't have the best relationship with my mom. So they really encouraged the wedge that was between me and my mom. I got extra praises for saying that I never wanted to talk to my mom again, or they encouraged that. And they played emotional, like, oh, you want to talk to your mom? That hurts my feelings. And like, just really emotionally manipulated. So this is the first time that me and my two sisters have lived together since my baby sister was like a year old. And my aunt and her husband at the time took us all. And it was... It was an okay life. Like everybody has some stuff to deal with and there was food there, and but emotional manipulation, just, it, it wasn't the greatest. Then when I got into high school, my mom, we thought had got her life back together. And so me and one of my sisters moved back in with my mom. And at that point I was already pretty far gone. I mean, I was 14 years old and was already drinking on a regular basis and smoking weed and just trying to be grown, selling weed and stuff like that. And my mom, she felt so bad for the horrible things that she did and the horrible things that she put us through that she let me get away with whatever. They treated me like I was a grown man and let me make my own decisions pretty much. I would leave the house and go run around in the streets and come home once a week, one night a week to eat. And then I would leave. I would steal stuff from my family and leave and this was the downward spiral of my drug and alcohol addiction. And there wasn't anything specific. Well, alcohol was always, that was my baby for a long time. But the drugs wise, there was no specific drug. I was just, I was addicted to being high, to feeling good about myself when I was higher drunk, to feel confident, to not feel, to try to forget everything I went through in my childhood. I was that popular, like dropped out of high school. I'm at all the parties. I'm you know, selling drugs. I'm, I, I was that guy, one of them. And I became a total piece of shit. The relationship I had with women was horrible. I grew up thinking that emotional manipulation is just a part of the game of life. Right. And so I used guilt and man emotional manipulation against the girls that I was with when I was at that time. I was out partying, just trying to fuck whatever I could and doing all the, the drugs and alcohol, making horrible decisions. And then I finally just wasn't able to hold it together anymore and dropped out of high school. And so that just expedited all of that immensely because I didn't have that pesky thing keeping me locked down in one spot. And I just honestly ran the streets for two years 
doing my thing, making my own situation worse, blaming everybody else. With the childhood that I had, I always got a pass because everybody was like, oh yeah, he's a piece of shit, but this happened or that happened or like, yeah, they were homeless when he grew up or he grew up in drug houses and his mom's in prison. So cut him some slack. And so when you're constantly being told that you're a victim and that none of it is your fault, you're never going to own up to it. You're going to keep using that for as long as you can until life or if you're religious, whatever your, your higher power smacks you in the mouth and kind of tells you, no, your past is your past. And that definitely influences your situation and who you are. But once you get to a certain age, it's your choice. Now you're making the choice to continue. Then at 17, I told my story of when I joined the military and it wasn't like a, I'm a good guy now either. I was a piece of shit when I first joined the military too. I mean, I got an article 15, a couple months into being at my first base for underage drinking. I was selling Adderall to a lot of people. I popped hot on a drug test for Adderall. I was on the quick route to being kicked out. And that's what a lot of people don't realize is that they think everybody joins the military and like we're these great people. And what they don't know is that our disadvantaged youth are who join the military. It's not generally your upstanding kid from a upper class life and because their family won't let them fucking do it. I mean, like I was a Cav Scout. The only people who were Cav Scouts in 2008 were poor, white, black. It was it was the poor of this country. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a socioeconomical thing. And so we bring all of our baggage with us. We're all running around like we're still in the streets. And so, yeah, right when I get my field grade article 15 steps in my daughter's mother. And there's two people in my life that I wouldn't be the man that I am today. Or in the case of my friend, I wouldn't be here today. And that's my daughter's mother and my best friend and brother Jones he's my daughter's godfather and he was always by my side the funny thing about him is we grew up in the same city but didn't know each other until we got to Fort Drum New York in the army so step in my daughter's mother and she is a no-nonsense, straightforward type of woman. Every time I was being a fucking idiot, she was telling me I was being a fucking idiot. And she helped me take the next step in becoming a man. I mean, because she made me feel like I had somebody that was going to be there for me no matter what. And still to this day, she is. Even though we're not together, those promises that we made each other when we were 18, 19 years old... They may not be the same exact promises uh, that we made, but she is still by my side. Today, me and my daughter and her were running around doing things together, and she is still very much never abandoned me, which with my childhood, that's something that I was scared of. So from that point on, I turned into a stellar soldier. I got promoted ahead of all my peers. I got my corporal stripes. I went to WLC, ALC. I went to the staff sergeant board. I got all these great awards, all these things, because I finally thought that I thought that I had everything that I wanted. In my kid brain, it's like, you made it in life. 
you know, if you have a wife and a kid and you have a house and a car and I had all those things. And so I thought that I fucking made it right here. American success story. I don't need to change nothing. I'm fucking perfect now. And uh, that wasn't the case. I definitely made some steps in the right direction, but I still had a lot of work to do. I mean, I was drinking a lot and I was a dickhead at times. I grew up thinking that watching my grandpa's influence, I never put my hands on her or anything like that, but it was like, you need to walk on eggshells so I don't get mad because when I get mad, then everything's fucked. I mean, I was a pretty good husband and father. I was nowhere near perfect, but my anger was definitely what was holding me back. And after two deployments to Afghanistan and my continued alcoholism, that only got worse. Believe it or not, it didn't, it didn't get better after that. And then I got out of the military and started doing industrial painting and I fucking hate it. The only reason why I did it was because I had a family I needed to support and I am a high school dropout fucking loser. And so I felt that I didn't have any options. And my daughter's mother was going to college at the time. And so I had to support the family. And when I got out of the military, I did what a lot of people do. And I had a, a loss of self because I identified so much as Sergeant Meade. I'm a fucking war hero. I'm Billy Badass. I'm all these things. And when I got out, I felt like a, like a loser. Like I, I didn't achieve anything. Like I didn't matter anymore. And the drinking got worse. Surprise, surprise. And then my daughter's mother started getting more and more successful with her career, which at the place I was, that was a hit to my pride. I, I'm the breadwinner. I'm the one who holds this family together financially. It's your job to be emotionally there for our kid and take care of our kid in that way. And it's my job to earn. So that caused more of a riff in between us. And fast forward, me and my daughter's mother split up. And this is the second time that she saved my life. Because if she would have stayed with me, I would be the same drunk asshole that I was. But since she didn't want to be together in that capacity anymore, it forced me to really kind of reevaluate myself. And I would Wish I could tell you that when she said, hey, I love you, but I, I'm not in love with you anymore, that that fucking flipped a switch in my head. And all of a sudden I did the work, but it didn't. I continued. I spiraled downwards with my alcoholism. I'm ashamed to say I used to drink and drive with my daughter in the car. I would drink until I passed out. Any night I didn't have my daughter, I was drinking till I was passing out. I was meeting all these random chicks on the dating websites because it was the first time I've been single in a long time and putting myself in a lot of situations that there's no way in hell I would today. And one night I'm coming home from LA from a, I was doing a job down in LA doing a pipeline and I'm coming home and I'm drinking alcohol all the way from LA to Sacramento. I get off I-5 thinking I'm being sneaky and it's like one in the morning and I'm smashing down well, like Grant Line Road or something like that and I get pulled over and that's finally when the fucking light switch went off. 
when I came to my senses in county jail, that is when I was like, I can never, what am I doing? I was sleeping on the ground of county jail in my basketball shorts and a wife beater with my Nike slides on. I'm laying on the floor of the holding cell in county jail when I come to. And that's when I decided that I, I couldn't do the drinking anymore. It was embarrassing having to call my daughter's mother and tell her I got a DUI. It was embarrassing having to tell everybody because they always told me not to drink and drive. And that's when my sobriety journey started. I was pretty heavily involved with AA for a long time. I was going to six, seven, eight, nine, ten meetings a week, like as many meetings as I could because it was the one place where I felt like everybody was on the same page with me. No, everybody was there because they didn't want to drink. So these AA meetings, they were a blessing for me. I never got a sponsor, but I kind of worked the program in my own ways. I took what I needed from AA meetings because I felt like what the AA and what NA does is a great thing. And it's definitely needed and it definitely saves a lot of people's life. But a lot of the ways they do things that weren't for me, a lot of beliefs they have weren't for me. And instead of like a lot of people that I know just said, oh, AA, this or that. And so they don't go and they don't get any of the benefits from it. I decided that I was going to take AA and just like anything else, I was going to take what I could use from it and what was going to work for me. And I was going to apply it and I was going to kind of disregard the rest of it. And so I have the big book and I have a lot of their literature and I've read it all. And they definitely have a lot of, a lot of good things. And like I said, I would never talk down on either one of those programs. I encourage anybody who thinks they have a drinking problem to the very first step is you need to go to a fucking meeting. Whether you're going to jump in with both feet, that's totally up to you. But the best resource in the world that there is for getting clean and sober is AA and NA. I never had, like I said, I never had a sponsor, but my second angel in my life, besides my daughter's mother, is my friend Jones that I had talked about. And he will never know what I owe him. From being a scared boy in the army, he was my rock. We were those friends that people made jokes that we were gay and this and that. And there's pictures of us sharing a cot together and NTC training and like huddling up in the back of a frozen Humvee and four drum. <laughs> and, and yeah, and that man has been through my side through everything. And when I was going down my dark drinking times, I knew when I was drunk, crying, feeling miserable about myself, why does God hate me? Why has God done all these horrible things to me? If I picked up my phone and I called him, he would answer. And he always gassed me up. If you talk to him, he still to this day tells me, Nick, you are going to change a lot of people's lives. You need to create your own movement. You need to do these things. I wish that I felt a tenth of a man as he tells me that I am every single time I talk to him. And there was times where I'm drunk and 
I'm thinking those, those stupid, I'm going to end it all thoughts. And I call him and he's just there. And sometimes that's all that somebody needs is just somebody to be there. And instead of when I got sober, instead of a sponsor, I had him and I would call him and I'm, 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 I I didn't drink today. Oh, I fucking knew it, bro. You're going to, I got, I got three days sober. Oh, you're the fucking man. You're a beast, whatever. All the way to now when I'm at years sober now, I just talked to him like a couple weeks ago and it's the same thing. It's fuck doing other people's shit. Like you need to do your own stuff and you need to start doing this. And we got big things and all these crazy things, like a once in a lifetime type of friendship. And it's not like your traditional friendship where it's like, we don't hang out every day. We don't talk every day, but I know that no matter what I do, I have somebody in my corner and I've been a huge piece of shit and he's been right there in my corner and in all my major successes in my life, he's been right there. I mean, when me and my daughter's mother bought a 3000 square foot house with a balcony in a private neighborhood, he was there. And I remember this moment, we got Drake started from the bottom. Now I'm here, right? And we got it blazing in this. It's like a mini mansion. It's like the biggest thing I've ever. And like, I felt like I'm the fucking man. Like, look where I started. Look at where I'm at. And he's there video recording me and my daughter and my daughter's mother dancing in the living room. And I remember like, I got all my chains on and I'm doing all this. And like, he has been there. And the day my daughter was born, he flew to Seattle and he was there the day my daughter was born and he stayed with us. And we're not as attached at the hip as we used to be, but I'd put our friendship up against anything. And during my sobriety and my dark days, like without him, I don't think I could have done it. He'll tell you different. He'll tell you I would have done it with one fucking arm and one eye and whatever. But That man, yeah, I could never repay him for what he did. But as I'm getting through my sobriety, I'm realizing that my anger's still there. I'm going through my depression still. I'm like, all these things, right? And every alcoholic and every addict thinks that, yeah, we're okay, we're a fucking asshole. But like, the only thing that makes us an asshole is the alcohol and drugs. Like, once we get rid of that, we're a fucking perfect person because. All addicts are like narcissists, pretty much. Like, we're perfect. And the only thing that's wrong with us is our drug abuse and our alcohol abuse. And if we were to change that, we'd be perfect and everything. So then I started getting resentful. Well, now I'm sober and I'm and I'm great. Why does my daughter's mother not want to be with me? Why am I not all of a sudden successful? Why am I all of a sudden not happy? And enter... Brett or my therapist and that man I've told him how much I owe to him and if you talk to him he'll tell you the transformation that's happened over the past couple years and going to therapy besides walking into that AA meeting going to therapy was the single greatest thing that I ever did for my mental health admitting that I have anger and that I have PTSD 
And that it's not just, woe is me, my life sucks. Like this is the card I was dealt. I have to deal with it. And I have to make other people deal with the way I'm feeling all the time and all these things, realizing that you have control of it. I know that there's people that have bipolar disorders and things that are extreme, but we have control over our emotions for the most part, not in a way of like, somebody pisses me off and I'm just not mad, but we learn tools to cope with them healthily. I still get mad. I still go through, there's some days where I wake up and I feel depressed or this or that. And back in the day, that would have cycled. And that one day of depression would have turned into two weeks, which would have turned into whatever. I've learned ways to nip it in the ass and move on. And with therapy and with reading and podcasts and audiobook, I have been able to come up with my own system of things that work for me and things that have worked with other people that I've tried to help over the past year or so. I've started trying to help other veterans and other men, primarily men, because there's so many different things that women and men go through that I feel like some things that I would tell women is ingenuine. The feelings that men have in today's society are completely different. So it's not that I only want to help men, but it's just that men are the people that I think I can help the most. But it's work though, right? And nobody wants to do the work. Me and my daughter's mother were just talking about it because that link that I sent to you about the books I sent to her, where it talks about 30% of high school graduates haven't read a book in the past year. And I told her and, and, or you, somebody, I, I said, if you go to the average person and you ask them to give you an outline of their normal daily routine, I guarantee you at least 90% of the people will not have done one single thing for their emotional, mental health their physical health. They wake up and they get on social media and then they have their coffee and then they have their shitty breakfast and then they go to work and then they're negative at work all day. And then they get off of work and they're watching TV. And it's like, well, no wonder why obesity and depression and all these mental health issues are at rates that we probably never thought they were going to be. I mean, if you talk to people in the, the eighties and told them, the the crisis the mental health crisis our country's going through and the physical health crisis our country's going through they wouldn't believe you they would think that it was a storyline to a movie that's how crazy it is so with that i was like okay how am i going to be able to start helping change people's lives and i was like boom i'm going to be a counselor like that's what i'm going to do And then I talked to Brett and I realized, oh, you have to have a master's degree. (laughs) And, and so I'm like, okay, well, what's, what's the the quickest way. Right. And throughout my journey and my system I put in place, I've realized that physical health and your emotional and mental health are intertwined. Just like when I got sober and I was still miserable because I needed to work on my emotional and mental And then once you work on the emotional mental, you got to work on the physical because if you're physically unfit, you're predisposed to mental health issues. You're going to feel 
sub self-conscious you're gonna be more depressed i mean there's study after study that shows that people that are physically fit i'm not talking about bodybuilder bikini competitor like being a healthy person you are less likely to be depressed every single study shows that there's studies that show that a healthy diet and physical activity work better for you than the serotonin receptor blocking medication that they give for depression. It works better. But when you tell people that, hey, it's your fucking fault. You're in the situation that you're in because of you. They don't want to hear it. They want to hear it. it's not their fault. Here, take this pill. And the cycle continues. So I decided to get certified as a nutrition coach and started taking clients and stuff like that. It's not skyrocketed. Like I thought it was going to be revolutionary, but it's slowly getting there. I got to work on my social media game a little bit, but my end goal is I want to be a one-stop shop, right? I want Molly to come to me and say, Nick, I'm not feeling good about myself and I'm not physically fit or whatever. And I want to be able to work on your nutrition, work on your physical fitness. I want to help you work on your emotional and mental. I'm not saying that I'm a therapist, but just personal things that you can implement into your life to make it easier for you. Just routines, journaling, meditation, prayer to whatever religion. Me, myself, I'm Catholic, but I think religion is a great thing. And just like anything, it can be abused. And just like anything, people can take it too far. But if you get down to the bones of any religion, the concept is be a good fucking person, like be a good person and be appreciative of what you had. And that's what religion boils down to in a nutshell. So I don't care if you're Buddhist, Islamic, Jewish, Catholic, whatever, like that's what it boils down to. And so giving people these tools and helping them feel better because the way I felt about myself for 29 years, I don't want anybody to feel like that for one day. And if I can help somebody not feel that way, well, fuck, that's a win for me. That's when I really know that I've accomplished what I've been sent down to do besides be a father, because that's the, being a father is the greatest, greatest blessing that's ever been given to me was, is my daughter. And the, in order to be a good parent, you have to be all those other things too. Like you can't be chronically depressed and morbidly obese and all these things and be, you can be a, I guess you could be a, <clears throat> a good parent, but you're not going to be the best parent that you could be. But if you're depressed and you're locked in your bedroom well, that's not good for your kid to see. You're not giving them the emotional support you need. If you're morbidly obese and you can't run around and play with your kid and obesity passes down the generations. If you're morbidly obese, it's more than likely that you're going to create a morbidly obese kid. So quick question. How old is your daughter now? 10 going on 18. So how has she seen your evolution, I guess, over the years? Or how do you think your evolution has affected her watching you? Oh, man. <clears throat> I think having a kid young is a great thing. It's obviously got its downsides. But in a, in a sense, we're 
growing up together in a How way. If that makes sense. Twenty-one. She was okay. she was born on she was born on her mom's twenty-first birthday. They have the same birthday. So as I get to, she's coming into she's ten. She's coming into herself now, right? And she gets to see me do the same thing. And man, has she appreciates it so much for the first little bit when I got sober. She would always do the like, hey, daddy, where are you drinking? Can I taste some of that? Can I have some to like make sure that I wasn't drinking anymore? Because we've always talked to our daughter like she's a person. And that's why my daughter is very mature and well-rounded. So my daughter knows that I had an alcohol problem. My daughter knows that I got a DUI. And my daughter knows all the work that I've put into it. I mean... I used to have to bring her to AA meetings with me sometimes, and I hated doing it. And I only did it when I had to, but I, I would bring her. And you could ask Brett. She used to sit in the lobby when I did my first PTSD group. She would sit in the lobby on her iPad. And, and so she knows everything that I've gone through. And me and her mother make sure to tell her that addiction is strong in our family and it can ruin what you have. I mean, my daughter's mother, her dad is an alcoholic. My mom was a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. It's just, she's predisposed to it. And so we make sure to tell her and, and let her see like what can happen to your life if, if you go down that route. And she loves the person that I've become. I mean, I, I've learned how to like do any hairstyle you can think of French braid, fishtail braids, Dutch braids, anything you can think of. She loves that her dad is at every single cheer competition. I'm at every practice. I mean, it's sad because if you go to these cheer things, you don't see too many dads, unfortunately. And uh, the way I look at it is that if my daughter was a son and he was into football, I would be at every single practice I could be at. And I would be at every single game that there was. And I don't have a son though. I have a daughter and she doesn't play football. She's on a competitive cheer team. And it's still my job regardless to be there, be there in the cheer dad shirt with the glitter and the, the glasses and everything like that. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Of course, just like every other man, I wanted a son and whatever, but I think that having a daughter is God or your higher power or whatever is a way to change a man. Because if you're a good father, it softens you a little bit and it makes you rethink the way that you deal with women as a whole. I don't want to say that they get a pass or anything like that because uh, women are assholes just as much as men are, but I will say that since I've had my daughter, I've started to understand the way women think a little bit better. Um, seeing a woman be grown from like inception. Now I'm 32. I meet a, a woman and she's in her 20s or 30s. And I think that she's just crazy. And why is she like that? But I get to have my daughter now and see why she's crazy. Yeah. And also, can I ask too, like, what was it about your daughter's mom because you mentioned like when you're younger you kind of 
talked to a lot of women and you kind of just didn't care. What was it about your daughter's mom that you kind of like, okay, I'm going to stay with her and have a kid with her and be with her? So in high school, we had the same group of friends and we kind of knew of each other, but we didn't really like know each other. And then one time I went home on R&R and we kind of officially met each other at a party and it didn't go good. We were just kind of like shit talking each other that we're both like that. Like we talk shit about people and like, so we were just kind of like talking shit to each other. And then I went back to Fort Drum and I think she hit me up first. It may have been the other way, but I think it was her. And we ended up like apologizing, like, hey, sorry about that, whatever. And it just kind of turned into more. And then she came to New York and, oh man. So definitely the military romance thing played a part in the beginning. I mean, it was the coolest thing. Like I was 18 years old and this girl was flying out from California to see me and she shows up and she's got like this sweater dress on and her hair's all done and she's there just for me and all my homeboys in the barracks had signs that were like welcome Nick's busy and all this stuff and, <laughs> and oh yeah I know and it was just like this this is the way it is in the movies like boy joins army boy meets girl they fall in love and they're together forever like this is the way that it's supposed to be and that was obviously part of it when we were younger but she's not the most like nurturing person and she'll tell you that she's not like the oh baby come here she was like that a little bit more when we were younger but she is a very like Nick you're being a dickhead and this 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 or Nick you need to pull your head out of your ass and unfairly to her she really helped me grow up like I said because when I first met her I was on my way of getting kicked out of the military and she said what in the fuck are you doing you're gonna ruin your life I'm pretty sure she told me, you're already a high school dropout. If your dumbass gets kicked out of the army, you're never going to accomplish anything. It's cliche, but it was, she was the wind kind of that pushed me in the right direction. And over the years, we've obviously had our issues and everything, but she has proven to me that she's not going nowhere. In whatever capacity that she's there, she's going to be there. And the relationship that we have is very uncommon, but it, it works for us. And now, I mean, what keeps me around now is she's a great mother. Even when she's got her own stuff going on, I never have to worry about anything with my daughter. I make a joke. She's like our family's secretary. She makes sure like, okay, Nick, we have this and we have this. And because I'm not the best at that, I try to be better with it, but I'm not the best with it. And just the way that She's willing to just tell you when you're being a fucking idiot. I mean, that's like the biggest thing. And that's so rare these days because everybody's so worried about being offensive now. And, oh, you can't say that. You don't know what that person's been through. You can't tell them that or this or that. And she's just very like, no, like this is what I'm going to do. And so I, I think that's kind of what it is. I like that. I, I prefer to be super cutthroat like that. It's easier, <laughs> but I am over the years too. I've, I've learned to be more nurturing. I realize that being nurturing is something that men look for in a woman because it's so bred into us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I actually read this book and it talks about tapping into your 
inner goddess. It's like a female book, but it talks about embracing your femininity and being nurturing and kind of embracing that. So that's cool. I kind of want to dive in a little bit more about your wellness program. So how does your wellness program work? So right now, the the first steps that we that we're doing is it's just the nutrition as of right now. I haven't had any clients hit me up for the whole shebang yet. So it's we're just working on nutrition and physical fitness. And I do things a little bit different. I mean, I'm not one of those coaches that um, you hire and you're like, hey, I want to lose 10 pounds in a month. And I'm like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. And I do the opposite. I mean, because most people who are looking to hire a coach have ruined their metabolism. They have their maintenance calories probably down into 1200 calories and they're wanting to lose weight. I really focus on a sustainable way. I want to be the last coach that you ever hire. I don't want you to have to hire a coach every year or two years to lose that same 15, 20 pounds. I want to be the coach that helps you rebuild your metabolism, that helps you get sustainable weight loss or muscle gain, or that that's realistic. I mean, fad diets are, gosh, they're a pariah on our culture. I mean, intermittent fasting, keto, Atkins, paleo, carnivore, like all these things. They, they may have good qualities and they're good for short periods of time. Like if you want to drop a little bit of weight and you already have a healthy relationship with food, go ahead and, and do intermittent fasting. But all those diets build bad relationships with food. It's proven that the best diet for people is a well-rounded whole foods diet. Eat rice, eat bread, eat these things, but learn to eat them in the right way. And so what I do is I help rebuild your metabolism and then we go into a sustainment. So we'll work on building your maintenance calories back up to something that we find acceptable and then we'll keep it there. And then depending on what your goals are, we move on from there. If you want to put on muscle, you want to bulk up, we'll go. If you want to lose weight, we'll go that way. And I focus on for weight loss, building muscle, not doing cardio. Building muscle is a much better way to get weight loss and sustain it. I tell people all the time that with weight loss, starving yourself and doing cardio is like in Fast and the Furious in the cars when they hit the NAS button and all of a sudden it takes off real far, real fast, and then it stops. Building muscle and having a high maintenance calorie is like the old school muscle car. Like that motherfucker is going to go 130 miles an hour with or without the nitrous. And, and it's, but it's so counterintuitive to everything that we're being told. We're being told that carbs are bad. We're being told that cardio is the best form of exercise for you. We're being told that intermittent fasting is a healthy long-term option for you, which it's not. And it's, it's hard in the fitness industry because Every single one of those diets, you can find studies that say they're the greatest thing on earth. That's one of the downfalls with the society that we live in, in, in anything, not just health and fitness. I mean, you could go on and find doctors and scientists saying that the earth is flat and they have scientific data and all this stuff. 
And we're so smart, we're dumb. Like there's so much info, there's so much information out there for us that we don't have any because you don't know what to believe. And it's just bad in health and fitness. I mean, it was so bad for so long where people were pushing these, you have to be this crazy fit. And we are making fat people feel horrible for so long that now the pendulum has swung in the complete opposite direction, which blows my mind. Now we're telling people that it's okay to be obese. You're still happy and healthy. And we're teaching this to our kids. And I mean, just because a person is obese doesn't make them a bad person, but it makes them an obese person and it makes them an unhealthy person. <laughs> and, and you can be both of those. And like, I don't have anything against overweight people. A majority of my family is overweight. I battled with my own weight problem. I mean, before I got really into fitness this last time, I was 198 pounds. So about 50 pounds difference, but it was, and that's part of like, I was miserable. I was depressed. I was self-conscious. And so I'm just happy that I snapped out of it because it's too easy to stay down that role. And then next thing I know that 198 pounds turns into 220. And then I just feel like I'm stuck like that for life. And I don't want anybody to think just like what I was saying about my emotional and mental health and the way I felt. I don't want anybody to think that their physical health is out of their control because it's not. Our physical health is the easiest thing that we can control in our life. It's easier than your emotional health. It's easier than your mental health. It's easier than your financial health. If you're too fat to do intense workout, go on a walk, do these things. And people that say they don't have time, I would love to show them my schedule book and show them what a typical day for me is I get up at 3.20 in the morning and I go to the gym and then I work a manual labor construction job from 6.30 till about 2.30 or 3 o'clock. And then from then I have to get my daughter to cheer practice and I'm taking school classes right now and I'm working with clients and I have a whole house that I have to clean and cook and like do all these things. So I understand that it's busy, but I heard something on like one of my favorite podcasts is, is Mind Pump. And it's a, a fitness podcast, but it's also guys who talk about life and just kind of like what they have going on. And one of the hosts, Sal, he said that we let perfect get in the way of good. And I find myself doing that all the time, too. It's like, oh, well, I need an hour and a half workout every single day. And if I can't, oh, I can't get it. So I can't go or, oh, I don't have time to prep all my food. So, oh, I just don't have time. So I'm not going to do any of it. Like any small step that we take. And the biggest thing that I've heard on that podcast is that if you fall in love with the journey and while you were getting ready to compete, you obviously had to love the journey you were on. I know it sucked at times, but when you love the journey, the outcome starts to matter less. I mean, when I first got into fitness, it was, I'm going to get fit. I'm going to be captain, steal your girl. I'm going to be watch out for your baby mamas. I'm going to be all these things. <laughs> and that never comes. It never gets enough. You hit your goals and then you're not impressed with them anymore. And you fall into this like cycle of still feeling like shit, like still not feeling good about yourself.
And you have to learn to come up with a sustainable way that you're going to continue to do it and you're going to like it. Some people that's going to be lifting five days a week. Some people is going to be two days a week. Some people, whatever, but we have to find something that's sustainable. We can't go on these yo-yo diet and working out like crazy and then binging and, and those things are horrible. And it's the same thing with our mental and emotional health. My routine that I have, I love it too much, if that makes any sense, to where when I can't do it, I don't feel right. I journal every single night and I meditate and I pray every single day and I have my gym time and I read every night and I take my dog on the walks. And those are all things that I do that at one point I looked at as like, oh, well, I got to read to learn this, or I have to walk the dog because he's got to take a shit or all these things. But I had to do everything for it had to purpose. It had to have a purpose right now, an immediate reward. And I've learned that the reward is living a good and fulfilling life. And when everybody's system looks a little bit different, when you find out what it is, it's truly a blessing. I mean, to be able to live and be happy and be content. Do I think my life's perfect right now? No. Is there things that I would change if I could? Absolutely. But I am happy. I am a happy person right now. And I'm a content person. And for the first time in my life over the past little bit, I'm not a bitter and jealous person. I was the most bitter motherfucker you ever met in your life. Jealous. Like my homeboys used to laugh at me because like River Road, like driving to Antioch right there on the Delta. I'd see, we'd be driving, we'd see people on the, the boats. I'm like, look at those motherfuckers. I bet you mommy and daddy bought those boats. I hope they crash the boat. I hope the boat don't start next time. Because like my ass is over there driving around in a 2003 F-150. Like I was just salty. Anytime I seen a good looking girl, what's she doing with him? He must be rich. And I have those thoughts every once in a while now. I'm not going to lie, but I just fucking check myself. And the being real with yourself is the biggest thing, right? Like why be jealous of what somebody else has? You're jealous that they're rich. Well, what are you doing to get rich? Why are you hating on that person in the gym, calling them a a gym bro and all these things? Why aren't you doing, what are you doing to get that? It was something when I, when I was really into like the dating game, I was like, why am I not attracting quality women? I felt like I was attracting, they were either like good looking, but had nothing else to offer, no personality, or they had personality, but I wasn't attracted to them. And I'm salty. I'm like, oh, these women, this and that, and blah, blah, blah. And I had a self-reflection time. And I was like, am I the quality man that is going to attract the quality of woman that I want? And the answer was no. Like the answer was, was not. So why should I expect this dime piece looking super sweet, smart, funny woman to be attracted to me when I haven't put the work in to attract them? This isn't a fucking 90 or 2000s romantic comedy where the hot chick just falls for the dude for no reason. Like this is real life. And once you are real with yourself, 
it makes things a lot easier. You get rid of that victim mentality. Everybody wants you to think, society wants you to think that your life sucks because of somebody else. Your life is hard because you're a woman. Your life sucks because of this. Your life sucks because of that. And you may have certain things in your life may make the path harder. I mean, fuck, like I said, I should have been a statistic. If you listed everything that happened to me in my childhood and the statistics on where people are, they're dead or in jail right now, 90% of them. And you may have the added challenges, but at the end of the day, you have to put in work and society doesn't want you to think that. They want you to think that it's not your fault and okay, here, so take this handout from the government. Okay, here, so take this pill that's going to make you happy. Here, take this pill that's going to make you skinny. Here, have these surgeries. Like, you're not good looking enough, so get these surgeries and do this and, and all these things. Because if society told you that you're fat and broke because you're fucking lazy, then... They're not going to get anything out of it. They gas you up in the wrong way. You're perfect, bro. It's society that's holding you back. It's your genetics that are holding you back. It's the man or the woman or whatever. That's what's holding you back because you're fucking perfect, dude. Like, go ahead and watch another fucking episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians instead of picking up a book. Like, it, it, it blows my mind. And the most happy people on earth are the people that have realized that that I've realized that they are in control. You're in control of your emotions. You are in control of your physical health. You are in control of your financial situation, like anything. Like, I am not the richest man on the earth. I own a house in South Sac. Like, I'm not over here talking from my high pedestal. But I'm not where I want to be in my angle. And I'm doing things to make that change. And they're small steps. We want to get to the finish line quick and you get the biggest changes in the long run with the smallest steps today. And the key is just keep taking those small steps every single day. And there's going to be days where you don't want to. There's going to be days instead of investing 50 bucks, you want to buy a new shirt or whatever. But if you make that decision and, and you buy that new shirt, then you don't have the right to complain about being broke or not being where you want to be financially or all these things, because we're not entitled to anything. You know, you're not entitled to be happy. You're not entitled to be in shape. You're not entitled to own a home. You're entitled to walk down the street safely, which in California, you can't even do that. And everything else in the world, you have to earn. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I want to second so many things that you touched on. I just want to say that it's really admirable that you've taken accountability for a lot of things that you've done in your life, even things that you're ashamed to say. But like you said, you check yourself, which I think a lot of people don't do. And one question I I would like to ask is, what would you recommend for people who are currently in that dark space or dealing with depression or anxiety to where they don't necessarily feel like getting up. Because for me personally, like when I was struggling really hard with depression, it's not like I just didn't want to get up. I wanted to, like I physically couldn't because your emotions are 
dragging you down. Like I wanted to get up. I wanted to work out. I wanted to get out. And it's like, my brain just wouldn't let me. Yeah. I mean, this is going to sound like oversimplified, but I'll say the same thing that I, I tell my daughter is you got to do it. I mean, if you're, I've been in those days too, where I just, I'm laying in my bed with a 40 ounce of Mickey's next to me. And you're not going to be able to go out and conquer the world on day one or day 100 or day 1000. Do one little thing. That's like when I get my clients, when we start working on fitness and nutrition, I start on one small thing. Okay. So I'm looking at your diet because I have all my clients track food, everything they eat for me for one week because, and I tell them not to change anything. I just need to see what we're doing. Right. And so I'm like, okay, I want you to drink 20 more ounces of water today for this week. That's our goal. Drink an extra 20 ounces of water. And that's doable. Now, if I was to tell them, all right, I want you to eat 120 grams of protein, 90 grams of carbs, 20 grams of fat. I want you to exercise for an hour. They would be overwhelmed. And I think that's what we do when we're depressed or when we're, when we have PTSD or when we're going through these things, we have so many issues that we want to work on and we want to work on all of them at once because our life sucks because of all of them. Pick one thing and make one small step to that one thing, you know, pick up a book. There's so many, I've read so many self-help books, self-development books that it's a joke. And I pick up things from all of them. And that's something small that you can do. I mean, I think the first self-development book I bought was at, oh, what was it? It was Dimples Records and Used Books right there in Arden. Me and my daughter were living in some ghetto $900 a month apartment in the heart of Arden. And we walked over there and I bought my first self-development book. And I bought it for 98 cents. And so my journey started off with, what's that? What book was it? The Ways of the Superior Man. And so my journey started off with a 20 minute walk and 98 cents at a bookstore. And just like a snowball going down a mountain, every single day, I try to pick up a little bit more. Every single day, I try to do a little bit more. And now I've read countless self-development books and countless parenting books and countless nutrition books and physical fitness books and podcasts. And there's so much knowledge out there for us and things that can help us. But like I said, like you have to do it. And I know that it's hard and I know that it feels impossible and that it feels like, what's the use? What's a 20 minute walk going to do? What is, what is journaling for five minutes going to do? My life is a fucking mess. What are, what, it's not going to solve anything. And you're right. Journaling for 10 minutes every night is not going to change your life, but it's going to help. And it's a tool. And the more tools we have in our tool belt, the more successful we're going to be at, at building our life. I mean, what was a major thing for you, for you to get out of it? First of all, I just want to say that was the best answer I could have possibly imagined. (laughs) Um, For me, I was lucky enough to have like a really good friend to show up at my doorstep and just be like, hey, we're going to the gym. Like, hi, get your clothes on. We're going. And 
I don't think if it wasn't for that, that I probably wouldn't have, to be honest with you. I just need that, like drag me out of bed because I'm not going to do it myself. I don't know. I would like to think that I motivated myself. (laughs) I don't think I did. I think I was just hella depressed. I honestly think that I had just like a good small circle of friends that helped me get out of it. I don't know. I guess, yeah. So that's why I asked that question because that was something that I struggled with. And it's so crazy how one person or a couple people can affect your life in such either a positive or negative way. And they'll never know. There's like that person that, that pulled you out of your bed that day and said, hey, let's go to the gym. They'll never know that when somebody asks you how you got out of your depression, that you're going to use them. You know, they're never going to know that that they were that major of an influence. Right. That just reminds me of the year that I got home from deployment in 2019. I started working an odd job. You come home from deployment, you're like, what the fuck do I do? I maxed out my unemployment because why not? And then (laughs) I got this odd job working as a machine operator at this facility and we were making ID cards and started working with another veteran who it funny enough, we met each other years ago at, at a shooting range where he, and he yeah. remembered me specifically. Cause like, I'm, I'm sure my last name's two letters and like, there's not a lot of females that look like me in service. So he was like, Oh, I remember you. We talked a little bit, whatever. And so from that point on, he kind of was like, Oh, we're veterans. We got to look it up for each other. And in that period of time, when I was working at that place, I think it was very obvious how depressed I was. Like I would cry and then I would go into work, but I wouldn't talk to anybody. I wouldn't really associate. And uh, there were times where I would experience panic attacks. I'd go to the bathroom, have a panic attack and come back out. I was a machine operator. So really, I just popped my headphones in and went right back to working. Nobody really talked to each other. There was a period of time, too, where I was contemplating ending it all. Like, I hate feeling this way every day. And I called the suicide hotline that morning. And I went into work because they talked to you, whatever. And so I went into work and this person was like, what's wrong? I could be fine. But the second you ask me what's wrong, (laughs) you're getting it all. (laughs) Yeah. So, and so I was just like, I don't want to talk about it. But him recognizing the signs, he went to my direct supervisor and was like, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, I'm taking her and we're going outside and we're taking our 15. And so he, my supervisor was just like, okay. And then he pulled me out and then was like, hey, I noticed that you're going through something right now. And I pulled you out so you could take a 15. You could talk about it. You don't have to talk about it, but I'm sitting here with you. And so obviously I just like started crying and telling him everything. And that moment right there is like, to me, it was like, he didn't even know that that morning I had just called the suicide hotline and it's just crazy to me because to this day I will never forget that ever yeah it's it's so crazy how we can have such a massive impact on somebody's life with so little effort and we would rather spend that effort breaking each other down yeah it's such a crazy thing how 
things just work out like that. That's how I don't understand how people don't think that there's some type of higher power. It's like whatever higher power that is out there, put those sequence of moments together for you. And they're truly a blessing. And I mean, now look at you. Nowhere near where you were at that point. You're not making licenses no more. You're making money moves. <laughs> I'm saying, like, you know. yeah, yeah. And then also going back to what you said about enjoying the journey, it's something that Brett actually told me. And I think maybe he even mentioned it in group once. That's why they say love life and the pursuit of happiness. They don't say love life and happiness, it's the pursuit. And that's like the most beautiful part. <laughs> Yeah, that cowboy boot wearing guy has some good ideas. It's so funny because he does not look like a counselor at all. Like when he was talking about ripping off his awning in his backyard, it's like, are you a therapist? (laughs) But he is. And he has some pretty fucking great things. And even when my friends call me and I, I'm like, what would Brett tell me right now? And I tell them things that Brett has told me and they're like your therapist is fucking awesome and I'm like yeah I know (laughs) it's so crazy I think if I would have walked in and it would have been some uptight therapist that you think of I don't think I would have stuck with it but Brett he was just such a like a no nonsense like type of dude we sit there and we bullshit and he makes it a lot natural and he's somebody that I can relate to on a personal level and it makes it so much easier and he'll never know either too like how much those sessions and those groups mean to everybody I don't think that he can comprehend that to the extent that they do even at the position I'm in now I still like look forward to my sessions every other week and I still look forward to group and that's what I tell people all the time is that our brain and emotions are this such complicated thing that I encourage everybody to go see a counselor or a therapist There's so many emotions and things that we're dealing with that we have no clue about that we could use their help with. Like, you don't have to be severely depressed or this or that. I think that the world would be such a better place if everybody did that. Right. And you mentioned also in the past, you just say hate and ask things to like people that you saw. I noticed I had a lot more road rage. I would literally pull over and fight someone on the side of the road if they cut me off. And I realized that a lot of that anger, it was within myself. And so something that I had heard and kind of changed my life too, is how you talk to people and how you react and everything you say about people that you like, don't like, whatever is a direct reflection of yourself. And so in knowing that and seeing my progress throughout the years, I've noticed like, I let shit go. My road rage is not there. I don't say shit about people. I mind the fuck my own business because I don't have that anger within myself anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a blessing when you get the anger in check and it's like now nobody around me has to be worried that I'm going to blow a fuse. We're able to go on vacations and enjoy it. We're able to go to the movies and enjoy it. We're able to do these things and joke around and not worry that I'm going to get pissed off out of nowhere. And it just makes so much more of a comfortable living environment for everybody around you. And it makes you a more pleasant person. And it's like you said, it's a reflection. So I've heard it a million times, but with road rage, are you going to let an incident that took 10 seconds, somebody cut you off in traffic and flipped you off? 
I would let that ruin my day all fucking day. I'd be like, oh, that motherfucker. And I'd be mad all day. So I essentially gave that person the power in 10 seconds. I was so weak minded that I gave that person the power in 10 seconds without even knowing it or trying to ruin my day completely and effectively ruin everybody's day around me. Because when I was in one of those moods, nobody around me is going to be happy. Nobody's going to have a good time. And again, it, it just goes back to owning up to your shit and being a grown man or being a grown woman and taking control of your emotions. I mean, I'll cut to a book real quick that I go back to all the time is David Goggins book, Can't Hurt Me. He talks so much about just unleashing your potential and it, your circumstances don't matter. And if you're, if you're broke, do what it takes to get another job. If you're freaking, if you're fat, do whatever it takes to get skinny. You can't sit around and, well, you can, but you should not sit around and bitch about your situation if you're not doing anything to change it. And it's, it's freeing. Right. And David Goggins was overweight. They were like, you can't join. And he was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like a hundred, it was like 160 pounds in like 90 days or something that he lost. Yeah. That's, That's crazy. crazy. Yeah. I um, would never, I would never advise anybody to do that. Yeah. So do you have any book recommendations or any favorites that you'd like to share? Yes, obviously David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me, Jay Shetty, Think Like a Monk, Ways of the Superior Man, and No More Mr. Nice Guy. Those are my, if I had to give a man, David Goggins is for everybody. Think Like a Monk is for everybody. The other two are, are gauged towards men. If I had to give a man four reading books to, to start their journey, that's, that's the four that I would give them. Nice, nice. And What's your go-to? Okay, so I was going to say to Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty. I like everything Jay Shetty. I like his podcast, like his YouTube, everything, whatever. And I would also say, just because I'm I'm like in the finance world, I like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's a classic kind of That's mindset switch one. from what my parents always told me growing up versus my mindset now. And it's an easy read. And it's called You're a Badass by Jen Sincero. So that book was actually gifted to me by a friend and told me that it changed her life. And so I wanted to pass it on, pay it forward. And so since that, I'd like to think that I've passed it on and paid that forward too. And then so where can people connect with you, find you? Yeah, on IG, it is wellness underscore Nick underscore 90. And that's my, it's my official page or whatever. I'm trying to get better about posting a content and stuff on there. I was doing good for a little bit, but then I've stopped. But funny little thing, my daughter, we were talking about how I'm, I'm struggling with the making content. I feel weird about it and this and that. And so this past weekend, my daughter made two little content videos for me. And so I'm going to be posting those here within probably tomorrow. That is so cool. I mean, I think I need somebody to help me with my real estate one because I haven't posted anything. And uh, I think that just means I'm getting old. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get over for me, at least like the self-conscious part of it. Even where I am now with, you know, my journey, it, I'm always like, 
oh, people are going to be like, who the fuck is this guy? And da, da, da. and I just get super self-conscious about it. And I get in my head and I kind of just need to get over it because there's going to be people that think that, but then there's going to be people that it, one person, if I can help one person out of a hundred, that's worth it. It's yeah. worth looking like a jackass. <laughs> All right, Nick. So thank you so much for being here. I think that that was such a great interview. It was better than I imagined. (laughs) Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad that we were finally able to connect and get this done. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening. I hope that you guys took a lot from this interview as I did. And as always, tune in next time for another episode of Pretty Perspectives.